Konnichiwa, hajimemaste, yoroshiku onegashimasu. Watashi wa woodland Just kidding! Welcome back to Not Ready for Rhyme Time. I'm your host, Taylor Woodland. And I've totally been procrastinating because I was working on my other podcast. Why? 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 That's a good question. Anyway... What was I going to say? I totally lost my train of thought. Now I'm just rambling. Yeah, just rambling. Oh well. So I'm going on a cruise pretty soon. So I'm trying to get some episodes done for you in advance. And yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah, I to- I'm totally lost my train of thought now. Um, oh, one of those episodes will be a guest reader. Yay! Guest reader! Finally one I had in person, because normally I won't let you near me. Stranger danger, and I'm super paranoid, and all that good jazz. But this one was my brother, so it's okay. Though, yeah, it's my brother, but whatever. We did a reading together, and that will be next episode. So look forward to that. But this episode will just be me again. Sorry. If you're tired of hearing me listen, I guess you can just skip this one and wait till the next episode uploads. But without further ado, I've rambled for two minutes now. I'm going to get right on into the reading. Yay! More author features. The book we will be reading from today is The Tell of Lucia Grandi, The Early Years by Suzanne Speranda. It is on Amazon. I will leave a link for it where you can find it. This is the synopsis for the book on Amazon. When an old woman is asked to tell the story of her life, she tells an intense and poignant tale about growing up and surviving a warring suburban family during the 1950s and 60s. Written as a memoir, each chapter describes a particular incident in Lucia's life, which shows the constant struggle between her parents and the perverse effect it has on her and her family. From her complicated and unwanted birth, to her witnessing a suicide at age three, to her stint as a runaway at age 14, The story progresses to the final crisis, where as a young woman, she is turned out of her house and banished from her family forever. It currently has 43 reviews on Amazon. That's really good for a starting author. She has four stars on the book. So without further ado, let's get right into the excerpt. The Tale of Lucia Grand, The Early Years by Suzanne Speranza. Prologue. The world thinks me dead, but there is a lot of life left in these old bones. I've been absent from the world for too long, but I'm here, waiting, waiting. I'm an old woman now. I spend my days looking out on a world where once I have had my play, I watch the seasons come and go and follow one another in an endless procession, an unbreakable cycle that knows no end, round and round like some eternal carousel that I've failed to get off of. I've outlived everyone and everything I knew. It's all gone. The good and the bad, 
All of it, I alone remain, waiting. So it was just after breakfast on this particular day in early June that I sat looking out the window, as was my habit during the mid-morning lull, enveloped in the soft cushions of my familiar high-backed wing chair. I gazed out on a beautiful, clear, and sun-filled morning. The lush grass spread out toward the horizon carpet-like, meeting the cloudless deep blue sky in a straight line that looked as if a steady hand had drawn it. The tall, plump trees that dotted the landscape at even intervals around the property swayed lightly in the soft breeze that blew in from the east. Patches of golden sunlight graced the fluttering leaves, dabbing bits of color on them as if Midas had laid his hand there. I, therefore, didn't notice when she had come. But soon my attention was drawn from the window and the world beyond. As if sensing a strange presence, I turned toward the doorway, which was behind me, and I saw her. She stood like an angel, an innocent messenger, in the entrance of my room, lit from behind by the hall light that was still on. I could see that she was young, mid-twenties perhaps, and her golden-red hair reminded me of both the sunset and the sunrise. It fell in waves to her waist like a blushing cascade. Her skin was so white and soft, it looked like marble. For a moment I thought she was a painting. It was only when she smiled that I knew she was real. Or was she? It has been a long time since I had had visitors. The world had all but forgotten me, like some continuing drama from which I had been excused. The world went on without me. There were some years where I had lived at center stage, but those years were few and faded quickly. For these last decades now, I had been relegated to the wings and had even been gently but persistently pushed out of the theater altogether. I had grown old, childless, and both my sister and my brother were long dead. Even some of their children had died in recent years, and to their grandchildren and great-grandchildren I was merely an unidentifiable photograph in the family album, an obscure name on the family tree, whose branch ended abruptly with me. The center of that tree and all the intertwining branches led elsewhere. No path ever led to me. So I was confused that now, after all these years, I should have a visitor. She smiled again, this angelic young woman, as she brushed her hair from her face. I hope I'm not disturbing you, she said tentatively, hovering uncertainly in the entryway. I motioned for her to come in. Slowly she slided ghost-like toward me, her loose-fitting, long white sundress billowing around her as she moved. Again, she smiled. This young woman intrigued me with her genteel manner and renaissance-like beauty. I wondered what she wanted with me. I'm so sorry to disturb you, she reiterated softly, but they told me this would be a good time to see you. I pointed to the wing chair opposite me. She slipped noiselessly and gracefully into it as if she were only a spirit, unencumbered by her body. It had been years since I could do anything with such ease. For a long time now, I had an increasing awareness of my physical self as my body slowly ceased to function. 
My limbs grew stiff and heavy laden with years. Movement was no longer instinctive and natural. Gone were the days when my body sliced through space, agile and unimpeded. Now in the evening of my life, as my body decayed around me, like some worn and rusty armor, I was more aware of this flesh than ever. It lay round my spirit like a heavy chain that tied me down to earth. All dimes are good to see me. I smile, trying to put her at ease. I'm not a very busy person these days. She looked down nervously, as if the reality of my static existence here at the end of my life embarrassed her. Then she cleared her throat, <clears> throat> raised her head, and looked directly at me, adopting a more formal stance. My name is Beatrice Cummings. I'm a doctoral student in literature at the university, and my dissertation is... She hesitated, as if trying to find the right words. My dissertation examines the oral histories of living people, autobiographies, as it were, told by older people. A silence fell over the room as she turned her head and looked at me askance. She continued, I'd like to know if you would be willing to tell me your, and again she hesitated, your life's story. <laughs> I hadn't laughed so heartily in years, but suddenly I found this strange request from this pretty and earnest young woman very amusing. I didn't mean to mock her with my laughter, but she took it to be that way, and she seemed hurt as if my amusement cut her in deep and secret places. Noting her pain, I took hold of myself and quickly apologized. I'm sorry I'm not laughing at you or your request. It's just that after all these years, why would anyone be interested in me? I thought you would be a good subject for several reasons, she replied, as if desperately trying to sell me on the idea. You've lived a long life, you're still alive at 109, and... 110, I corrected her. I just celebrated a birthday. I'm a Gemini, you know, born the first day of June. Sorry, she said, then continued. 110. And unlike most people your age, there aren't too many left who are my age, I chuckled. <laughs> unlike most older people, she rephrased, you seem to be... You seem to have... Again, she hesitated, as if she were afraid to really say what she was thinking. I seem to have my wits about me. She looked down at her folded hands and nodded. Yes, I suppose that makes me a good subject, and I smiled. But I really have nothing very interesting to tell. That's for me to decide, she argued. I just want you to tell me everything, or at least everything that was important to you. I silently pondered her request. What would be the harm in telling this young woman my life's story? She seemed almost desperate, and I remembered from my own graduate school days how hard it was to find a unique dissertation topic. If she needed help, then why shouldn't I help her? And besides, I hadn't had visitors in years, and certainly she would come regularly to hear this dying old woman reminisce about an unimportant an uneventful life. Time was endless for me now at the end of my life. Perhaps I could spare her what I had both so much and so little of.
Where would we begin? I asked. At the beginning, of course. It was now her turn to laugh. I didn't think that was a silly question. Where does one's beginning lie? David Copperfield began with his birth. But don't all our beginnings reach further back in time than we are even aware of? If the coachman hadn't fallen in love with the cook across an ocean far from their native lands, I would not be. If the fisherman hadn't rebelled against his family and tradition, seeking fame and fortune in the land where the streets were paved with gold, I would never have existed. So how could I begin at the beginning when I knew not where that beginning lay? We can start now, if this is a good time. She said, as if this had been firmly agreed to, the deal signed, the handshake given. She dug around in her bag and drew forth a recorder, placing it on the coffee table between us. I turned and picked up the glass of water that was on the table next to me. I took a long drink, as if I had been so out of the practice of talking that the act made me thirsty. I put the glass carefully down and turned to her, but she was gone. The only thing that lingered was her perfumed scent that hung in the air around the chair where she sat. I wondered then if I only imagined her. I didn't notice when she first came, nor did I see her leave. I wondered if she would return, full-bodied and substantial, a living, breathing creature, or if she were just some figment of this dying woman's imagination. I turned and picked up the glass of water again. After another long drink, I laid it carefully down on the table. When I looked up again, I saw Beatrice gliding back into the chair opposite me, her white sundress fluttering around her. The sun streaming in from the window fell over her like an aura, turning her golden hair to fire and bathing her in a brilliant light. I wondered again if she were real. Perhaps she was the one I had waited for since I was a child, I thought with a shudder. Was this the moment I had dreaded my whole life? Silence was all around us, broken only by the almost inaudible hum of the recorder. Of one thing I was certain, whether she was simply a graduate student or some harbinger of life's end, I knew that so long as I spoke, I could extend this moment forever. For in this one moment, I was still alive, I was still safe, and even though I was old, I wanted to stay alive, I wanted to stay safe. But what was I going to talk about? My past seemed like a long, tedious, and poorly traveled road that disappeared from the horizon the moment I looked back at it. How was I going to keep her here with me in this moment, where I still lived and breathed, if I couldn't even remember such an unremarkable life as mine? I raised my eyes from my folded hands and met her intense gaze. I wanted her to stay. I wanted this moment to last. Forever. I sighed <clears throat> and cleared my throat. Maybe I'd just make it all up. End of prologue. Chapter 1 There is one moment in all our lives where, like a door opening, we see for the first time. That event becomes our first memory. We have seen and experienced things before, but because we don't remember them, they hold no meaning for us. Often, first memories are quite profound. 
A friend of mine remembered her newborn sister being placed in her arms when she was two. So powerful was this experience for her, with all its future implications of sibling rivalry, family bonds, herself one day as a mother holding her own infant daughter in her arms, that this was the event that awakened her. The event that awakened me, however, was as horrifying as it was profound. It set the mood and the tone of my life. It was on Easter Sunday, just prior to my third birthday, when my father, Leonard, and my mother, Ruth, along with me and my older sister, Lynn, were walking toward my grandparents' apartment in Brooklyn. We had just arrived, parked the car nearby, and were hurrying because my grandparents were awaiting us with one of my grandmother's elaborate and bountiful holiday meals. We had just approached the corner where Knickerbocker and Myrtle Avenues met, and began crossing the avenue under the elm. This was a part of the world that seemed to have forgotten, made dark and shadowy even at high noon by the elevator train, which cast the whole neighborhood into darkness. It was redeemed only by the century-old cobblestone street, where people and cars tripped and skidded over the uneven stones. Above us, people scurried through the upper station. Trains stopped here, and this is where you could buy a ticket, embark or disembark by lurching up and down the long metal and stone stairs. Often in years to come, my grandfather and I would chase each other up one staircase, across the platform, and down the other on the opposite side of the avenue. So we were used to the sound of trains grinding to a halt above us. But on this particular day, as the train approached the station, we heard above us an ungodly screeching of the wheels, as if the train were not only breaking frantically, but was actually seeking to reverse itself. The squealing, grinding sound of clashing metal went on. It seemed forever like some beast that had been mortally wounded and whose death was slow and torturous. And when it was over, there was a brief moment of silence. Before the commotion began, people around us froze, their heads thrown back, their eyes lifted to the heavens. Some clasped their hands over their mouths as if suppressing a scream. Others clutched their heads between their hands, their mouths hanging open in disbelief. A few feet in front of me it began. A dark, thick liquid splattered to the ground in large drops that quickly merged into puddles. Before my mother could stop me, I looked up and saw a man's leg dangling precariously through the tracks as his shoe plummeted to the ground where the drops were now forming a lake on top of the cobblestones. His pants were soaked through with blood. Then chaos broke out. I was thrust out of the street and onto the sidewalk with a ferocity I still remember. Women cried, men shouted. My father, a policeman by profession, began to order everyone around. There were sounds of sirens in the distance. My sister became hysterical. My mother left me standing alone on the sidewalk as she went to comfort the distraught girl. My father ordered my mother to take us to the apartment. He left us, running frantically up the stairs, disappearing into the darkness of the station, where he then presided over the crowd and the commotion that ensued. My mother, never an obedient wife, at this moment did what she was told and hustled us immediately upstairs to the third-floor apartment, where my grandmother's fragrant cooking 
permeated the place with warmth and comfort. My grandfather, who had been waiting expectantly for us, had just glanced out the window, which was level with the tracks, hoping to catch a glimpse of us. Instead, he saw a man dressed in a dark business suit and carrying a briefcase jump from the platform onto the tracks into the path of the oncoming train. The man stood erect, facing the train calmly as if looking toward a friend. As it approached, he spread out his arms as if ready to embrace a lover. When I arrived at my apartment, my first instinct was to find my grandfather, to whom I was very close. I saw him standing by the window with his back to me. Agitated and frightened, I ran to him and to the window. I arrived there just in time to see the man's severed leg break free from the tracks and fall to the street below. When he realized I was there, he cried, No! Don't look! and scooped me up, covering my eyes protectively with his hand as he turned and left the room with me. But it was too late. I had seen, and seeing then became a habit of my life. Never again was I able to avert my eyes, or leave the veil that covers so many truths untouched. So it was on this beautiful Easter Sunday that I awakened to life, and to the sad tragedy that it is human existence. End of chapter one. Chapter two. What can I say about my beginnings that would illuminate the twists and turns of my life? What could I possibly tell that would explain how and why I arrived here at this dark moment and at the end of my journey? It was an inauspicious beginning. I was conceived in a moment of reconciliation amid one of my parents' many violent disputes, created not out of love, for love was not the thing that bound Ruth and Lenard together. What cemented their union to death was the eternal struggle for power and dominance at its most fundamental level, the need to be right at all costs, because to be wrong meant certain death. Death of one's self, death of the illusions that sustained that life. It was a struggle to shape the vagaries of life and the inconsistencies of the human heart into the picture that each thought and hope should exist. For them, the war was about keeping truth at bay, tucked safely behind the veil of illusion, about beating life and one another into a form that would fit the illusion. It was a cold November day in 1950 when Ruth caught a chill while walking down Junction Boulevard in Queens, where they, along with their three-year-old Lynn, had recently moved. Shortly thereafter, she came down with pneumonia, and, barely able to breathe, her temperature rising to deadly levels, she cursed Lenard from what everyone assumed would be her deathbed. He had brought this upon her. She raged and gagged and coughed, because he was too cheap to buy her a warm coat. Indeed, Lenard was a child of the Great Depression. He constantly worried about money. The salary of a New York City cop was small and he always hated spending any of it, even on the necessities of life. The doctors were intent on saving this young mother, just 24 years old. They were horrified to learn she was pregnant, not more than two or three months along. They gently told her that she would miscarry because every drug known at that time had been given to her to save her life. No fetus so newly formed and vulnerable could survive such an attack. 
but she slowly beat back the virus. After lying near death for several weeks, she won the battle. And much to everyone's surprise and horror, she remained pregnant. Even then, before I knew my name or was conscious of life and the world, my battle began. My endless war with existence and its cruel, arbitrary nature. Before I knew the word no, or could say or think or feel the word no, I uttered it in some silent and long-forgotten language. No, I will not submit. No, I will not accept this. No, it will not be. I will not let it be. So I clung to life with a tenacity that would define me, and that awful, continuous struggle with existence would shape every aspect of my life to this end. Ruth and Leonard awaited the arrival of their second child with some trepidation. The doctors warned that the child might be deformed or compromised in some way due to its unfavorable beginnings. But Leonard, always one to strike a deal that could get him what he wanted, launched a campaign to get from God what he felt was justly his, a healthy son. So every morning before he showed up at the Canal Street precinct in Lower Manhattan or after work, if he were working his 4 to 12 shift, he stopped in at nearby St. Paul's and made endless pacts with God. If you give me this, I will do this or that or behave this way or that way. He was certain that he had the ear of the Lord, that in the vast universe, this one God on high was listening closely to Leonard making note of his earthly human wants. Three days before my birth, Ruth's water broke, and Leonard, who was off that day, rushed his wife to Vel Bellevue Hospital in downtown Manhattan from their home in Jackson Heights. There, the terrible wait began. Lynn was given over to the care of my grandparents, who doted on the girl. Lynn loved them and often looked forward to their visits, but Brooklyn always scared her, especially the roaring of the trains past the apartment, the murky daylight darkness of Myrtle Avenue. She simply did not want to be there. She became inconsolable, even though my grandparents tried to distract her, and she began to hate the thing that forced her to be where she didn't want to be, the very thing that took her parents away from her. A day before my birth, Leonard came to visit Ruth and found her sobbing uncontrollably. When he asked what the matter was, she pulled back the blanket and cried, Look! In place of her round, fat, protruding belly, there was something that made Leonard queasy, almost fainting did away. Her belly had flattened to a near pre-pregnancy level, but on her right side, up near her waist, was a bulge form of a very discernible head, and on her left side, near her hip, was an equally disturbing bulge that wiggled like a tiny pair of feet. The doctor came upon them at that moment and trying to console them, called the baby breach. He ordered Ruth to push whenever she felt a contraction so that the muscles might force the baby back into position again. Leonard, never really good in emergencies for all his police training, ran from the room ran right out of the hospital, and like a convict seeking sanctuary, ran into the first church he came across. 
What he prayed for that night, or what part of his life, salary, or soul he bartered with God is unknown to me now. But his prayers were only partly answered, because on June 1st, 1951, after three terrible days of labor, Ruth called forth a healthy five-pound, two-ounce baby girl. Ruth survived, and so did the baby. But the boy both Ruth and Leonard had desired was for them still only a hope and a dream. The doctors beamed. The child was unharmed and normal. They couldn't understand Ruth and Leonard's profound disappointment. I already have a daughter, he remarked when the nurse rushed out to the waiting room to tell him he was the proud father of a baby girl. I already have a daughter, Ruth mumbled when upon coming out of sedation, she was told what it was she had given birth to. Ruth never had much use for girls. She had never been close to her sister, Helen. She resented her mother, Lillianne, for making it clear that Helen was her favorite child, and she resented Helen for being that favorite child. Ruth had the misfortune of resembling in looks, in gesture, and even in temperament, the handsome, dark, but irresponsible father who had abandoned the family in the mists of the Great Depression and left his wife and three daughters to starve. She paid for that resemblance all her life. Her mother often contemptuously reminded her that she was her father's daughter. Raymond Parker was a name we heard much of throughout our childhoods. It symbolized evil and betrayal, darkness and duplicity. He was the breathtakingly handsome man who seduced my beautiful but naive grandmother in a fit of rebellion against her strict, brutal, austere German parents. She ran away with the first man who showed her any attention, a man who stole her gentle, trusting heart. The consequences of her unbashed love and misguided loyalty to that love, we were often reminded, was that by the time she was twenty-six, she was alone, impoverished, and the beauty that had so defined her was fading as she struggled to care for her three small daughters, the youngest of whom eventually succumbed to malnutrition at the age of two. So Ruth, having a troubled relationship with both her mother and her sister, desired only sons. Lenard didn't dislike girls, as Ruth clearly did. He merely grew up in a very traditional Italian family where a son was the physical affirmation of a man's masculinity. A son who could be shaped and molded into his own image. A son who could carry on the family name, who would take care of him in his old age. To him, girls were simply insignificant. So it was on that early June morning... I fell with a thud into this unwelcoming family as if the stork had played a perverse joke on me and on them, and dropped me into the wrong nest. Thus, I began my life. End of chapter two. I'm going to stop the excerpt there, even though I was really enjoying that story. I do like it a lot. I think the representation of the family is and how people have been shaped by their past is actually very representative of some family lives. Even though some of that's a little silly. <sighs> it was just a different mindset in that time period. I have heard stories like that that are very, very true. The beginning of this story, 
where the girl was asking the woman to hear her story, touched home a little. I recently lost my grandmother, and there were some questions I regret not sitting down and asking. And I couldn't ask it to her towards the end of her life because she was suffering from cancer in her brain at that point. So she didn't have the ability to answer anymore. So I really think you should treasure those people before they leave. And just take a moment to sit down and talk to them. So before I get all emotional and teary... <laughs> I really enjoyed this one. This was The Tell of Lucia Grandi, The Early Years by Suzanne Speranza. I can see why it has such a high review on Amazon. I will leave a link for that for you to check out this book if you want to purchase it <clears throat> and support this author. I had a lot of fun reading this one. This has been not... Oh, it is on sale right now. So if you want to get it on Kindle, it's on sale for $7.50 and its original price was a few dollars more. So this has been Not Ready for Rhyme Time and I have been your host, Taylor Woodland. Remember, mind the gap.